Hi, everyone. Uh, it is my pleasure to be with you today, um, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Um, I, uh, my name is Lisa Namoro. I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and my official title is uh, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. Um, and I was asked today to give a update in pediatric psychopharmacology, um, and as Ken Spiegelman would say, to um, give some tricks of the trade, uh, which I'm going to try to do in 20 minutes. As many of you know, in the past when I've given this lecture, it's about an hour and a half, so I will try to bring it down to 15 minutes, uh, 15 to 20 minutes as much as I can. Um, what I'll say at the beginning and also at the end is if there's any questions or concerns or follow-ups that you'd like, don't hesitate to contact me, lnamoro at connecticutchildrens.org. And I'll say that again at the end, but all right. So um, where I thought I would start uh, today is um, that it's really important to just have certain principles in pediatric psychopharm that you use um, when initiating any medication uh, for um, a child uh, with a psychiatric disorder. And primarily today, um, since this is what you guys focus on in pediatrics is I will be focusing on ADHD, anxiety, and depression. So ADHD really having its own constellation of medications and then anxiety and depression, luckily actually having a very similar treatment algorithm and so they can be lumped together. Um, but what, what I see as a couple of the principles of psychopharm is, um, number one, to have a model in your head that the initial phase of, of treatment um, of prescribing medication is a tolerance phase. Really, when you prescribe a medication, um, a, a child or adolescent is putting a molecule in their body that they haven't had before. And as we know, in the world of antibiotics, in uh, rheumatology, and in lots of fields, um, you have to you have to be concerned that a child may not tolerate a medication. And that just happens across the field. Um, and so that's really the most important stage one is, if I prescribe this medication, is this child going to tolerate that? And that's what you want to kind of let parents know is your first um, is the first phase of this. And so uh, because of that, we always say that prescribing medications for a child for a psychiatric condition, you should start low and go slow. And um, we have made a lot of resources over the years on the actual dosing of medications, and we'll be happy to provide that to you. But um, the first thing, again, that you're interested in is, is this child tolerating the medication that I'm prescribing? The second piece then is, is this medication being efficacious? for this child. And so um, that leads me to the second principle of psychopharm, which is know what you're treating. Um, not just the disorder that you're treating anxiety or you're treating ADHD or you're treating depression, but know a few target symptoms uh, that those conditions are causing for that child. You're initiating psychopharmacology generally because a child is presenting with symptoms of these disorders that are interfering with functioning. Not just that the symptoms are present, but that they are interfering with functioning. Primarily, as pediatricians, we're interested in that developmental trajectory. So any kid whose symptoms of ADHD or symptoms of anxiety and depression yields them to begin to fall off their developmental trajectory, not be able to keep up, you know, impact functioning, either at school, at home, with friends, 
then that begins to meet the criteria for addressing the disorder with psychopharm. Um, but for each kid, the impact of the actual target symptoms of the ADHD may be different. For some kids, it'll be impulsivity, motoric hyperactivity. Uh, for some kids, it'll be more inattention, more distractibility, but not the motoric activity. And so without significantly long assessment, you can just help identify two or three target symptoms that you feel and the family feels and the child feels are the most interfering with their functioning. And then those are the symptoms that you're going to monitor in order to see if a trial of medication has been efficacious. Um, this also then brings me to uh, the use of checklists. So um, sometimes, now checklists are not the way you make a diagnosis. They can just be helpful in providing data around the diagnosis, and they can also be helpful in providing these target symptoms that I'm talking about. And there are checklists for ADHD, there's the Vanderbilt, there's the Connors, there's checklists for depression. You guys are using some of these for screening um, with the PHQ-9. Um, and uh, there are checklists for anxiety, uh, such as the Spence Anxiety Scale. All of these are public domain, and all of these can be found, and this is going to be one of the websites I'm going to share with you. Um, this, this one is very helpful. It's out of, it's from our colleagues in Massachusetts, MCPAP, mcpap.org, and on that website is a listing of all public domain checklists that can be used in the assessment of children with psychiatric disorders and for pediatric purposes that would really primarily be ADHD, um, anxiety, and depression. Uh, so um, that that is uh, um, two or three of the principles. The last one is that you want to start low again and go slow, which I mentioned already. Again, these symptoms have been around for a while. Uh, maybe you have watched them evolve over time, um, but they've been around for a while and there is no benefit in starting a dose high or titrating a medication quickly. The only thing you run the risk of is uh, intolerance. And so always start low and go slow. Um, now, it continues to be a conundrum in the world of psychopharm as to who's gonna tolerate what medication or what medication is the best for what uh, patient. And so I'm going to say a brief word on pharmacogenetics, which many of you may be familiar with. Some of you may have even been detailed by the industry about pharmacogenetic testing. And it is a field that I've been very interested in and have um, done a bunch of research in for quite a while. And um, if I were to give you a bottom line, it is that pharmacogenetics is quite interesting and really revolves around the detection of potential vulnerabilities around both tolerance of medications as well as response to medication. What it isn't, and this is really important, is it is not a way to determine what medication you should prescribe for any given child. So the industry's use of the binning of medications into green, yellow, red categories, uh, in which providers felt obligated to prescribe medications that were green um, is not the relevancy of this field. The relevancy of this field is 
that if you determine that a patient would be best served by a medication, let's say such as Lexapro or fluoxetine, there may be genes that are relevant to that medication. If you have pharmacogenetic results, um, then you may take a look at the genes that are specific to that medication. Now, there is no way to memorize all of what genes are relevant to what medication. That's why there are a bunch of resources out there about that. There is a guidance called um, uh, the CIPIC uh, team. They're funded by the NIH. They have released specific guidelines about specific medication and gene pairing. Um, and if anyone is interested, I am happy to show you the resource in that field. Um, it would take me another hour to go into everything else about pharmacogenetics, but please, please, please know that pharmacogenetics is not to be used in that uh, combinatorial analysis of red, yellow, gr green binning. It is to be used with specific relationships between specific meds and genes if that data is present. That data is just one more piece of data that can be relevant to psychopharm, but is certainly not the standard of care. Um, so enough said on that. Now, we're going to focus now on what, what is new in the field of ADHD, um, and then we'll move on to anxiety and depression. Um, Really, in the field of ADHD, for the past two years, there's been a little bit of an explosion of um, what are being called new agents for ADHD. They are not necessarily new agents for ADHD. They're new um, ways that prior uh, relevant medications for ADHD are being packaged. Um, and I'll tell you what I mean about that in a second. So um, as many of you know, there are three categories of medications for ADHD. There are the stimulants within the stimulant category. There are the amphetamine-based medications, and there are the methylphenidate-based medications. All medications that are call themselves stimulants are made from one or the other molecule with some variations on the molecule itself. The second category of ADHD medications is the alpha agonists. These are the medications that were initially developed to be antihypertensive agents, came into the ADHD world uh, a while ago. Uh, guanfacine probably came into the ADHD world about 15, 20 years ago. Um, and there are two medications in that category, and that's clonidine and guanfacine, and they both come in an extended release form. There is nothing new. Uh, in that particular category. Uh, the last category are the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. The only medication that had been in that category prior to this year had been Stratera or Atomoxetine. Uh, that medication now has been out for a while. Um, there is a new agent that is also a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Uh, it is called Quelbri. Q-U-E-L-B-R-E-E, -E -E. um, and it is also a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor and could be considered if a patient was not responsive to Stratera. 
As all of you know, the general strategy for ADHD treatment is to go with the frontline medications that is and that, that remains the stimulant medications. So either the methylphenidate-based medications or the dexmethylphenidate, uh, I'm sorry, the methylphenidate or the uh, dextroamphetamine-based medications. Um, some people do better on one or the other. There is some data to suggest that the amphetamine-based compounds can impact appetite a bit more than the methylphenidate-based compounds, uh, but this is quite individual. Um, as an aside, there are no particular genes that are relevant to methylphenidate or uh, dextroamphetamine medications. Um, so uh, the new agents, however, that are out there in the category of stimulants and I may not even pronounce them right, um, but there is uh, Zelstrom, which is a patch that is made of dextroamphetamine. There had been a patch, Detrana. There is a patch, Detrana, made from methylphenidate. This medication is made from dextroamphetamine and um, uh, might serve as an alternative. Um, there, uh, the big thing with patches is whether um, a child can tolerate the patch on their skin um, or whether they get a contact dermatitis or just can tolerate the feeling of a patch on their skin. Um, so now there are two options in that di dispensing category. Additionally, there is a new option in the um, methylphenidate category. There are two actually. One is Journey, which is a methylphenidate preparation, long acting, that you give at night. Uh, and it takes eight hours for the active ingredient to be released. And so this is a medication that could be helpful for somebody who needs a morning boost um, and to wake up sort of with their ADHD already under control. Um, the additional agent in the methylphenidate category that is new, um, and this has a tough one to pronounce, but Asterix, um, which is actually a dexmethylphenidate. So uh, a little more similar to focalin than Ritalin, but remember dexmethylphenidate is just a right-sided isomer of the methylphenidate chimeric solution. Um, and Asterix is interesting because it has dexmethylphenidate as an immediate release in its immediate release form. And then the prodrug to dexmethylphenidate, which is surdexmethylphenidate. Um, and so again, it is the industry's attempt to continue to produce long-acting preparations with molecules that are very short-acting, both, both dexamphetamine, methylphenidate are short-acting, and therefore the um, pharmaceutical industry has attempted over the years to find ways to make these agents longer-acting to help manage ADHD across the day. Um, and so stay tuned on what else uh, may be coming out. The best um, uh, way, I think, to kind of stay on top of all the ADHD medications is to order uh, the ADHD Med Guide that was produced years ago by our colleagues at Long Island Jewish um, LIJ. I know that they just updated it in October of 2022, so these newer agents should be on that chart. Uh, there are two charts on this laminated um, handout. 
uh, one has the methylphenidate-based compounds, the other one has the dextroamphetamine-based compounds, and you can order it, I understand, through the addwarehouse.org. Um, and I think it costs about $13 or $14, but could be well worth it um, so that you can have this in your office. Um, and I was very pleased to see that it had been updated. So um, the only other principle I will say for the management and treatment of ADHD is to consider, and I have done this fairly standard, I know all pediatricians may not do this, but I, again, because I am always most curious at the beginning to make sure that my patient tolerates the medicine before assessing efficacy, is I have almost always utilized the short-acting molecule of whatever long-acting I am going to consider. So for instance, if I'm considering Concerta, which is one of the long-acting preps of methylphenidate, I will expose the patient to methylphenidate first, just in its immediate release. I just wanna make sure that when that child sees that molecule, um, there is tolerance. And you can even begin to see some efficacy. Um, again, that means having perhaps um, a uh, uh, to write more scripts. It also may be um, you'll have to see the patient a little more frequently or have more phone contact. But if there is a way um, to do that, I do think it can be quite helpful in uh, determining whether a child is going to tolerate the long acting by first assuring that they're going to tolerate the short acting. It's still not absolute, but it can be quite helpful. Um, the only last thing I'll say for ADHD is um, the the only medication in the ADHD world that has a gene that's highly relevant to it is uh, Stratera N2D6. And there are guidelines by uh, put out by CIPIC that have you dose differently depending on the phenotype of the gene. Now, again, this is not yet standard of care. I'm just pointing it out as um, a possible use for pharmacogenetic testing if your family brings it to you or if you have it. Some pediatric groups um, um, had been using and obtaining pharmacogenetic testing. So um, I know that was super quick in the ADHD, but I want to get down to SSRIs before we lose time. Just remember, um, the most important thing for ADHD besides medication is to stay in touch somehow with the school and also with the family to make sure you know how the child is doing and have all other services be put into place. The 504 plan, the IEP, um, are the parents getting enough support uh, with their parenting techniques? Um, that The psychosocial interventions are important as well. Um, all right, moving on to anxiety and also depression. Um, as I said, the medication algorithm for both anxiety and really all the anxiety disorders, generalized anxiety, OCD, uh, um, uh, social anxiety disorder, uh, they really follow the same algorithm as um, the depression algorithm. And um, just as a little plug for one of the clinical pathways we did a few years ago that can be found on the Connecticut Children's intranet is the outpatient management of anxiety and depression, uh, which we go through step by step of which patients should be treated in primary care versus not um, and how you should proceed with both your evaluation as, as well as treatment. And um, in a national level, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out the GLAD-PC and has updated that also to guide pediatricians on how to manage anxiety and depression uh, in primary care. So 
um, both of those are out there. But um, the bottom line is both for anxiety and for depression in children and adolescents, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors really continue to be the front line. And so that includes um, Lexapro, escitalopram, Prozac, fluoxetine, and those are both FDA approved for adolescent depression. It additionally includes citalopram as well as sertraline. Um, paroxetine, which is also an SSRI, really uh, went out of favor in the pediatric world uh, because of some of the findings in a meta-analysis that children who are being treated with paroxetine were at slightly higher risk for self-injury, and it led to the black box warning. And so paroxetine really has not um, um, remained as a frontline medication uh, for treatment. And because there is FDA approval for both Lexpro and um, uh Prozac, so that's escitalopram and fluoxetine. Those really are um, generally the standard of care. Um, sertraline has FDA approval for OCD as well as generalized anxiety disorder. And so there's an evidence-based uh, for sertraline as well. Fluvoxamine is for OCD only and not depression. Um, but again, the guidance suggests that uh, you initiate um, treatment anyway, going low and starting uh, starting low and going slow um, with one of the SSRIs. Um, you wait about four to six weeks using a slow titration in order to see if target symptoms are efficacious. During that period of time, you really monitor for intolerance. If a family says to you, my child's never done that before, you make sure to listen to them. Um, any medication that penetrates the central nervous system can cause behavioral side effects. And you wanna always partner with your families um, and let them know that they are the experts on whether or not they see any changes um, with their child. And if they do, um, you really have to consider whether the medication you just started is causing that change. Um, but back to the algorithm, it's the initiation of one of the SSRIs of choice um, and then the algorithm proceeds with, if the first SSRI is not helpful, that a second SSRI should be considered. And it really isn't until the third step in the treatment algorithm that you might consider a non-SSRI. And by that time, it may be that um, you would refer the child out of primary care um, for a um, additional follow-up. Um, if pediatricians continue to be comfortable, the guidelines are that there are two alternative agents really that have an evidence base. One is uh, venlafaxine, not to be confused with desvenlafaxine. So venlafaxine, which is Effexor, has an evidence base for treatment-resistant depression in adolescents. And Wellbutrin has an evidence base, although it does not have FDA approval. Um, and those are really the two agents um, back to the, the, the issues with pharmacogenetics, unfortunately, a medication called Pristique, which was desvenlafaxine, which was not metabolized by any of the genes that were being tested, ended up in the green bin continually, and providers were highly influenced uh, to prescribe that medication when, in fact, there is no pediatric evidence that Pristique is efficacious for pediatric depression. And so that was really uh, the downside of utilizing the red, yellow, green binning for treatment of pediatric depression. So I am uh, running out of 
time. Um, I am absolutely thrilled to answer any questions or concerns that you all might have. Um, this was a lot of information in a very, very short period of time. Um, if there are additional questions, maybe I'll even be asked back to do a follow-up podcast. But I think um, for now, I'm going to end there. And again, I can be... Um, I can I can be found at lnamro at connecticutchildrens.org. Thanks everybody. Have a good day.